Let's open our Bibles together to John chapter 14. John 14, this morning we're going to look at uh, verses 25 through 31. Please listen as I read God's Word. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace. I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You've heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come back to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. Father, we have sung just now of your great mercy, and we could pile up 10,000 upon 10,000 reasons to give you thanks and to rejoice today, but especially as we consider that you, Lord Jesus, have given us your peace and have overcome the enemy May the truths of those things spill over into our hearts and our lives and fill us with awe of your power and your grace. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So last week we were doing premarital counseling with a certain young couple sitting, where are they sitting? Oh, back there, yeah. And as we were discussing marriage and talking about uh, continuing with romance and dating after you get married, uh, I recalled for them one example that was not my greatest dating moments uh, with my wife. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pretty good planner of dates. I spend a, a lot of uh, time and attention on them oftentimes, but uh, this one didn't go the way it was supposed to go. And all of you ladies are going to understand immediately my blunder. Most of you guys are probably going to go, what was wrong with that? So I, I wanted to draw out of Krista what parts of our marriage and what, what things that I do are most meaningful to her. Right? That, isn't that a good thing to know? As men, to, to know from our wives what, what do we do that encourages them, what do they value most about being married to us, that kind of thing. So that was the goal. And I had a whole evening planned. It was going to be awesome. And, and we were going to have this great conversation at dinner. We went to a nice dinner. 
one with cloth napkins. That'll be important for the, for, in a moment. And, uh, and then I had this whole, uh, we had, it was sort of a, a prog- I don't even know if you know this, um, a progressive meal here and there and everywhere and then back home. And, and it was always going to be great. Man, it was going to be great. But it started off with just a simple question to find out what I do that she values most. So I, I said this, you know, we, we ordered our drinks, our appetizers, and then I looked at her and said, sweetheart, if I were gone, if I were dead, would you get remarried? And if so, why? <laughs> Cloth napkins. She's got no tissues in her purse. She's just bawling at this point. What? Are you sick? Do you have a disease? Are you going to die? Why are you going to be gone? And I'm like, no, 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 it's not a crying question. It was too late. (laughs) We're done here. We're done here. There was no recovery. That night was just done. I mean, I tried, I tried. The waiter, poor waiter comes back. He's like, I'll come back. <laughs> just, a, just a simple question. And I tried. No, no, we're going to move on from this. And so, okay, bad intro. But, you know, what, what's important to you? Are you sure you're not going to die? No, I'm not going to die. What, what? Okay, forget it. All right. Have you ever done that? Have you ever, have you ever been in a situation where... Uh, there's, there's a lot of good conversation that's supposed to take place, or maybe it's a meeting and there's a presentation, but somewhere along the line, something is said, and the rest of the agenda is completely lost because someone says something or asks a question, and, and we're just done here, right? You've been in that scenario. Well, that's what's going on in this section of John's Gospel. Remember, this is the upper room discourse. This is uh, right before Jesus is going to go to the cross, but the, the disciples don't get that yet. But he has just dropped a bomb on them, and, and nothing else that he says matters, and they don't really get anything else that he's saying. Now, again, you know me, I like to, like to help us get into the sandals of, of the, the Bible, the men in the Bible, uh, when, we're, when we're talking about these things. So remember these disciples. Remember how this all started. These are just ordinary Jewish men. Some are fishermen, some have other occupations, but pretty simple life. And then a guy shows up who's really impressing them all and and captivating an audience, this guy named John, John the Baptist we call him. And he appears and he's saying some bold things, he's doing some crazy things, and the the whole city, everyone's going out to him to be baptized and all of this. And John says... I'm not the big deal here. I have come to draw your attention to someone else. And one day, Jesus walks up, and John says to all of these people, that is the Messiah. That is the man you've been waiting for for generations, for centuries. He's here. He said, God told me, God showed me, when you see the Spirit of God descending on one, that's him. And John says, I saw it, like a dove coming down on him. I saw the Spirit descend on that man. He's the Messiah. And all the disciples go, whoop, all right. And Jesus walks up to him and says, come, come follow me. 
And they do. And remember, two of them go and grab their, their brother, Nathaniel, their friend, Nathaniel, say, hey, we have found the one Moses spoke of. We found the Messiah, the Christ. And Nathaniel said, where is he from? And they said, Nazareth. And remember what he said? Ha, huh. can anything good come out of Nazareth? Then Jesus shows up and he says, hey, Nathaniel, I saw what you were doing under the fig tree. And Nathaniel goes, you are him. You are him. I will follow you. You are the Lord. You're the Christ. We don't know what Nathaniel was doing. I want to know what he was doing. But Jesus knew. And that's all that he needed, that Nathaniel needed to say, you're the Lord. You're the Christ. You are the one. Then they follow him around. He goes to a wedding. They run out of wine. Jesus just says, poof, water, wine. Disciples are saying, this is great. Then they see him walk into the temple where all this commerce has been set up, all these people there making money on selling animals for the sacrifices, and Jesus throws all the money changers out. He knocks over the table, spills their money everywhere, says, get out of here. This is my father's house. It's supposed to be a house of prayer, and you made it into a business center. And the, the, the Jewish leaders didn't take him out. And the disciples thought, whoa, wow, those guys look like they're a little bit afraid of Jesus. This is something. Then Jesus walks to a, a well, and he talks to this woman, a Samaritan woman, and he knows her whole story. He's never met her before, but he knows her whole story. Uh, Go get your husband, he said. The woman says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You've been with five husbands, and the guy you're with now is not your husband. And then the whole town comes and believes in Jesus as the Messiah. And the disciples are like, whoa, who is this guy? This is, this is great. And then they follow him day after day, week after week, month after month, as he heals the lame man, as he takes a couple sandwiches and feeds thousands, as he continues to take on the Pharisees, the leaders, and he, he, he shuts their mouths, he asks them questions they can't answer, he stumps them and exposes their hypocrisy, their self-righteousness. He watched, they watch him walk across the water, like literally across the top of the water. And they see him raise a man from the dead. And they are so excited. The kingdom is coming. Messiah is here. Jerusalem is going to triumph over all their enemies. This is great. I mean, he's, he's, he's the rock. Then he gathers them all into a room, and he's a little different. He's troubled. He's emotional. He seems to be uncertain, or there's something amiss. He, there's an agitation and a, and a struggle in his heart. And, and he blows them away when he takes off his outer cloak, grabs the slave's towel and water, and he washes their feet. That's not very kingly. It's not very Messiah-like. And it's very different from what they've seen of Jesus. And what are you doing, Jesus? And he says, you're not going to understand this yet, but you'll understand this later. And then he gets agitated and troubled and stirred again, and he turns and he says, one of you is going to betray me. 
No, not, not I. Surely not I, Lord. Who is it? Tell us. It's, it's not me. And then he looks at Peter, the ringleader. He says, and you, Peter, you are going to deny even knowing me three times before daybreak. No. No, I'll die for you. No. But then the big bomb that ruins the rest of the conversation says, I'm going away. And you can't come with me. And they don't know what to do with that. They completely, their hard drive crashes. They don't know what to do with that. Everything's muddy. They don't hear a word he says after that. And we've seen evidence of this. We've seen Thomas say, Jesus, wait, you're going away, and you say we, we know the way. How can we know the way? We don't even know where you're going. You're not making any sense to us. Wait, where are you going? Why? Philip says this. Um, okay, if, if you're going away, then could you at least show us the Father so we have somebody? And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. See, they are completely consumed with themselves when Jesus says, I'm leaving you. It's understandable, right? It, it, it may not be as raw selfishness as sometimes. It's kind of like, let me be careful here, it's kind of like when Krista, <laughs> when she heard my question, I had good I had a great discussion to follow. I had a great night plan, but immediately all she could think about was me being gone. And she's thinking about the impact of that on her. Well, that's what the disciples were doing. Wait, you're leaving us. What does that mean for me? What does that mean for us? And did you see that Jesus called him on it? See what he says? Verse 28. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father who is greater than I. Krista, if you loved me, <laughs> you'd be happy that I was dying and going to be with you. No, no, that's a horrible thing to say. But, but that's, do you see what he's doing? He's saying, you, you disciples, you claim to love me. I just said, I'm going to be with the Father. And He's greater than I. He's God. Now, I know Jesus is God too, but at this point, they're not fully persuaded of that. This is, this is a man, and He has said over and over and over again, I have come to do one thing. Please my Father. Obey my Father. Do what the Father gives me. That's all I care about. And He's already told them, I had glory with the Father. And I came down here to be with you, and now I'm going back to the glory I had before, and you all should be excited for me. You should be rejoicing. Oh, that is wonderful, Jesus, that you're going to glory, that you're going to be with your Father. It's not how they reacted. The response is, what about us? What does this mean for us? What does this mean for me? How many times in our lives do we say we love Jesus? It's all about the glory of Jesus. But then 
we turn that around to something that we don't like. He's not doing it the way I want it to be done. What about me in this, Jesus? Yeah, I'm glad for you and all. I'm glad you're building your little kingdom. I'm glad everyone's worshiping you and all that, but what about me? I've got feelings too, you know. And Jesus says, if you really love me, you will rejoice that whatever this is, is bringing me glory. Because that's the reason for everything, to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. And he calls them on it. I don't know if they got it, but that's a pretty bold, pretty harsh statement. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I'm going to be with the Father. And they didn't get it. Everything shut down. They weren't paying attention. Again, we know that the fact that he's arrested and drug off and Peter follows and someone comes to Peter and says, hey, aren't you his friend? If Jesus had, I mean, if Peter had remembered what Jesus said, surely he wouldn't have denied him. But it's lost on him. No, I don't know the man. Three times. And then Jesus dies, and they act like they had no idea this was coming. They didn't get it. Brain fog, something. Jesus knows this is going to happen. He knows what's going on. And I love verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Do you realize if our understanding of Jesus was contingent upon the apostles, we'd be doomed? And Jesus knew that. And he loved you enough. He loved me enough to not leave our eternal destinies in the hands of these clowns. No, they weren't clowns. Of these men who were completely shocked by Jesus' statement. And he sent the Spirit of God so that the disciples would remember what Jesus had said and done and write it down. And he's been preserving that word for 2,000 years. We saw several examples of this. Just hold your place here, but look back at chapter 2 for a second. Chapter 2, this is when he, when he throws out the money cha uh, changers. Remember that? I referred to it a few minutes ago. Verse 15 of chapter 2, he says, or it says, and he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money chambers, changers, overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered. Not at the time, but later after the resurrection, they remembered that it was written Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you do as a testimony for doing these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? See what John said next? But he was speaking of the temple 
of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. All the time that Jesus is doing all these things, the disciples are clueless. They don't get it. They don't understand the implication. They don't remember what he's talking about. But after the death and resurrection and Jesus sends the Spirit, the Spirit draws their minds back to all the events, and they say, oh, when Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it, he meant his body. Oh, that makes so much sense now. And on and on. And John, 50 years later, filled with the Holy Spirit, says, I need to write this down so that people can read it and know it, so that the Jews can read it and be persuaded that Jesus is the Messiah. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. He created all things. And nobody has ever seen the Father, but this one who came, he explained him. And the Word became flesh, and on and on through the Gospel of John, superintended by the Holy Spirit, so that we know what Jesus said and did. Jesus loves you. And he knows the reason for everyone's existence is to bring him glory. And how is he going to bring himself glory? By making sure his word perseveres so we can learn about him and know him. The Spirit did that. These men, they couldn't have pulled this off. They were too caught up in their own stuff until the Spirit came upon them. Notice what he says in verse 29 of chapter 14. Now I've told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. Finally, he comes back to life. The Spirit comes and they say, ah, oh, he told us all along. <laughs> we just forgot. But now they remember. We still have that same Spirit. This is repeated over and over again in the New Testament. That same Spirit indwells you and me. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and he says, we have the mind of Christ. Do you think about that? You have the mind of Christ? God's Spirit is still working to draw our thoughts to what He has said and done. We read His Word, we read the Gospels, we read the Epistles, and the Spirit of God takes that and teaches us about Jesus and helps us to know how to please Him, how to serve Him, how to obey Him, how to think the way He wants us to think. We call that illumination. He illumines the truth to us, the Scriptures to us. The, the natural man, the unbeliever, cannot understand the Bible. Oh, they can understand the, the facts, the, the narrative, but it doesn't penetrate to their heart. They can't believe it, and they can't act upon it because those things only come as the Spirit gives people the ability. If you are a believer, God's Spirit sent in the name of Jesus has indwelled you, and you have the mind of Christ. You can think like Christ. You can know what, to, what He wants you to do. You can please Him. 
all because Jesus sent his spirit in order to transform us and make us like him. And here he says, I'm going to do that. I'm going to leave my spirit with you. He also promises to leave something else. Verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Don't let your heart be troubled. The phrasing here doesn't come across in its full nuance here in the English. The, the idea of leaving this to you is a word that can be translated, I bequeath this to you. Now, we don't use that word a lot in our culture, but you probably know what it means. To bequeath something is to leave as an inheritance, right? That's what it means. I'm going to leave you an inheritance. Have you ever thought about this? How much did Jesus own? He had no real estate. He didn't have a car. Didn't have an iPhone. Maybe as far as we know, he owned a robe that at the crucifixion they took from him and you know, cast lots for. He had the clothes on his back and that's pretty much it. So what kind of inheritance is Jesus going to leave for his children? My peace. My peace. Where do you go for peace? Where do you hope to find peace? So you're internally disturbed. You're agitated. You're scared. There's a war raging inside. Where do you go? Well, we know where the world goes. The world goes for therapy. The world goes for medication. The world goes for yoga, meditation. The world goes to Netflix. Just got to escape. I just need a, a place to go, a thing. I, I got to get out of here and just, I just got to chill for a while and do nothing because I'm so worked up. That's the peace the world offers. And none of it works. We go to the government. Surely the government will save us. Surely the government, if they pass the right laws and they, they create the, the right economy and they, 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 they build the right walls or whatever they're going to do, surely the government can give us peace. Maybe we're taught in the right schools to get a better education. We'll have peace. That's all peace the world offers, and none of it deals with the right war. The war that goes on inside people starts with the war with God. The reason the world can't come to peace is because their ultimate enemy is not someone on this earth not even inside themselves, it is their hostility toward God and God's hostility toward them. And that war creates all the other wars. 
If everybody was at peace with God, we'd be done with conflict. Jesus came to make peace between God and man. If you go through the Old Testament and you look up this idea, this, this word peace, you're going to see an offering that occurs over and over again in the Old Testament, a peace offering. I'll be candid with you, until this week, I had spent very little time researching, studying what the peace offering was. It's, it's all over the place in the Old Testament. It just kind of gets lumped in with all those others, right? And you think, okay, yeah, offering this, offering that, a little thank offering, libation, well, here we go, offering. Peace offering is mentioned over and over and over again, and yet we're never told when the peace offering is supposed to be given. It's fascinating. It just shows up with lots of other ones. And the other thing, interesting thing is it's the only offering where... The Jews ate the meat. So they brought their animal to be sacrificed, and the priest took some, and the, the, the offerer took some, and the, the offerer ate the meat. And that was the peace offering. So what's going on there? Well, we're not told explicitly, but what I think is going on there is, the idea is peace with God, and we're going to have a meal with God and show that we have fellowship with him because of this death that has bridged the gap, that has created peace. And so instead of just giving the, the, the priest the sacrifice and going back to do your business, no, we're going to sit and we're going to partake together with the priest representing God and the man taking the meat from his animal, and we're going to have fellowship with God. The problem is, as the Jews continued to offer these peace offerings, they were still at war with God. They were still continually disobeying God. They kept saying, we have peace with God, but they were lying. If you trace through in the prophets, God multiple times says through his prophets a rebuke to Israel and to the, the priests and the leaders of Israel, you leaders are going around saying, peace, peace, shalom, peace, peace, and there is no peace. Because you're disobeying God, because you're committing idolatry, and God says, I'm not at peace with you, I'm at war with you because of your sin. Unless you repent, we can't have peace. Killing that animal doesn't make peace. And then one prophet shows up, and he says, there is a, a composer coming down the line that needs some lyrics, so I'm going to give him some lyrics. Wonderful, Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, the? Someday this one is going to come and he's going to sit on the throne of his father David and he will be the Prince of Peace. Because he will establish peace between man and God as he takes upon himself the sins of his people. Not some animal, but Jesus himself. And once he has taken God's wrath upon himself, he is able to give as an inheritance to his followers, to his children, his peace. 
And if we have peace with God, then we have all the peace we need. Don't run to the world's offering of peace. Run to Christ. Don't look for peace out there. You won't find it. Don't look to the government. Don't look to medication or meditation. Look to Christ. He's the Prince of Peace. And He's given it to us as our inheritance. He's left it for us. How often do we run somewhere else? How often do we place our hope and trust in something in man? And we miss the only place that there is true peace. If you're here today, you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, you will never find peace in this life. I promise you, you'll never find it. Because the world has nothing to offer you in terms of true peace. Because your biggest problem is your relationship to God. But if you put your trust in Jesus, he will give you everlasting peace. Don't leave here today without it. If you're a Christian and you don't have peace, because you're not claiming your inheritance. You're looking somewhere other than Christ for peace and you can't find it there. We have it. My peace I leave with you. Paul said like this in Romans, Romans 5, having been justified by faith, having been declared righteous by our faith, God is no longer at war with us and we have peace with God. If we have peace with God, nothing else matters. There is someone who wants to make you think that other avenues will work. Someone who is constantly trying to disrupt your peace. Someone who hates the thought of you resting in the peace of Christ. Someone who wants to accuse you, dismantle you, frustrate you, discourage you. We call him Satan or the devil. And Jesus knew he was coming. Verse 30 says, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming. Now, in that, that case, he knew he was coming for him. Jesus knows, knows the hour has come. He knows what's happening. Satan has entered into Judas. Judas has gone to betray Jesus to the, to the Jews. The Jews are coming to arrest Jesus and kill him on the cross. Jesus knows full well this is coming. Satan is coming. The ruler of this world is coming, and he thinks he's going to win. Can you imagine what this day was like for Satan? Yes! I've been after this since the day one. He deceives Adam and Eve into sinning against God. And then he sees as God continues to promise the deliverer. And then Jesus shows up. And Satan seems to be confused. Are you really the son of God? If you are, um, turn that rock into to bread and eat it. Prove, prove that you're the son of God. Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. 
Well, if you're really the Son of God, then um, throw yourself off the temple. See if the angels come and keep you from stubbing your toe. Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, if you're really the Son of God, then just bow down before me. I'm the ruler of the world. I could give you all the kingdoms. Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. But then Satan watches as the whole thing plays out. He's like, yeah, that's definitely the Son of God. Hey, Judas, come here. You can be a rich man. Judas says, okay. He's actually following through. Judas is betraying Jesus. This is great. Here come the soldiers. This is great. They're accusing Jesus of all kinds of things, and Jesus just stands there quiet, silent, doesn't defend himself. This is great. Can you imagine the glee in Satan's heart as they're nailing the Son of God to the tree? And all of his friends have turned aside. <laughs> Look what God has done. He's allowing this to happen to the Messiah. I win. The ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Go ahead, Satan. Do your best. I know the end of the book because I wrote it. You will have your moment. You will bruise me on the heel. But I will crush your head. You have no part in me. I have no part in you. It will be finished. And I'm preparing a whole ocean of fire. And someday I will cast you in it. But for the moment, go ahead and do your thing. We know that we win, right? Now, Peter is going to go on and say, Satan is still roaming around like a fierce lion that wants to chew us up and spit us out. He wants to tear you apart. But Peter says, resist the devil and he will flee because Jesus won. Now Peter knows a little something about this. <laughs> he did not resist the devil at first and Satan almost devoured him. But Jesus said, I've prayed for you, Peter. When you return to your senses, take care of my, sh my sheep. When Satan comes to you to discourage you, to distract you, to create war and conflict in your soul, in your spirit, in your family, in your neighborhood, you say, uh-uh. I serve the Prince of Peace. I don't have to be agitated for a single moment. What can this world do to me? What can this world do to you? Is there really anybody in your family that can truly hurt you? I mean, ultimately, what can they do to you? We get agitated when we take our eyes off of Christ and we put our eyes on ourselves. But if we keep our focus on Him, 
so what if someone else doesn't like you? Who cares? So what if things don't go your way, the way you'd like them to go? Really? Compared to eternity with Christ? It's just a little blip on the radar. I know, I know, life is heavier than that. And I don't always walk around like, yeah, I got this, Prince of Peace, boom, get out of here, Satan. But we kind of should. It says, so the world may know that I love the Father. I'm doing what the Father has commanded. I'm going to the cross, and then everybody will know. We are to take this message out to the whole world. Hopefully, they'll come to believe it now, and they will know that Jesus went to the cross in obedience to the Father. But some will not believe, but on that day when Jesus comes back and every knee bows before him, every tongue will say, Jesus is Lord. Even if they've never believed it before, they won't be able to, to deny it at that point. Now, for those people, it'll be too late. They'll confess that, and then they will enter into eternal destruction. They will join Satan in the lake of fire. We want people to come to saving knowledge now so they can avoid the lake of fire and have life with Christ forever. This is all his plan. We have nothing to fear, nothing to fear in life. When we aren't experiencing peace, it's because we're not yielding to the power of the Holy Spirit and looking to Christ. You realize peace is one of the fruits, right? Or the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, love, joy, peace. Have you noticed that almost every epistle in the New Testament begins or ends with grace and peace? In the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus did not come to cause inner turmoil for us. He came to give us rest for our souls. We may have conflict with other people. He did say, don't think I came to bring peace to the earth. I came to bring a sword. What he meant by that is, I'm going to turn mother against son and son against mother and, and man against his mother-in-law and vice versa. And I'm going to create division in households over me because some are going to follow me and others in the family are going to hate that. Not everybody's going to like you and be thankful that you're a Christian. Not even people in your own household are all going to be thankful that you're serving Christ. But in your heart, in your soul, and among the church, for sure, we should have perpetual peace. Because the Spirit is bearing peace in our hearts. Because we serve the Prince of Peace. And it's time to set down our weapons and receive the inheritance that Christ left for us. And not let Satan disturb the waters of our hearts.